What a, what a weird year we have had. It's hard to know how to think about it. It's hard to know uh, how to interpret it. I can remember early in the year, uh, I read dozens of articles. I bet you did too in whatever industry you're in telling us this is what this means and this is what's going to happen next. And the reality is none of us know. We're going to talk about that a little bit this morning. I stumbled into an interesting series of articles this week called Unknown Questions. It was sponsored by the BBC. And listen to how they introduced this series of articles. They said this, how will the way we live look different in the wake of the pandemic? We don't know the answer. And in some respects, we don't even know the right questions to ask. Don't you appreciate that humility? That's why we've been surveying dozens of global thought leaders, doers, and thinkers for our special Unknown Questions series in which we're unearthing the biggest questions we should be asking as we move toward a post-pandemic society. It's fascinating, right? In this series, they've talked about uh, the environment. They've talked about how we live in cities. They've talked about how, how we use money, how we're going to trade, and, and the, perhaps they've speculated on what uh, the, how those things might have changed permanently um, because of the pandemic. They're focused not so much, as they said, on conclusions and answers as on asking the right questions. And I think that's a really appropriate exercise for those of us who are followers of Christ. So with considerable humility this morning, I'm going to tiptoe into that discussion. I'm, I'm, I'm going to give you some things that I'm convinced that we need to be thinking about about what this past year has meant and, and what does it mean going forward for us as families, as individuals, uh, for our jobs. I'm certainly not a thought expert in any of those areas, but I'm convinced there are a set of questions that we should be asking that, that will build the right boundaries and give appropriate guidance as we move forward in the coming months. They're not the only questions we should be asking, of course, but these are some of the bigger questions, and I'm convinced these are for us, or should be, the starter questions. And I'll say more about that before we finish. By the way, these questions spill out of one of my favorite passages in the Old Testament. It's from the prophet Isaiah, and it's one of those passages that you read where, I mean, just a casual reading you think, wow, there's some good stuff in that, but there's a, as with the Old Testament prophets, there's also some stuff that's very confusing. But when you, but when you see the full setting, and when you get a clearer sense of, of what Isaiah is addressing, I mean, it feels like that he's been listening into our living rooms, especially this past year, especially as we think through what has happened to us and what we're about to go into, you know, this summer and this fall. So, here's what we're going to do. Number one, I'm going to take us on a brief tour through the history surrounding this passage so that we, so that we know what Isaiah is talking about. Secondly, we're going to look this morning at four viruses, four spiritual viruses, spiritual viruses that prevent us from asking the right question and prevent us from making the right kind of progress. You know, when you get a virus... It knocks you out for a while, maybe for a long while. And these spiritual viruses do the same thing. They, they knock us off track, so we're going to take an honest look at them. And thirdly, we're going to look, at, after we look at the viruses, we're going to look at an alternative process, God's alternative process, his alternative way of thinking, and some of the questions that spill out of God's alternative. 
All right, this is a long passage, and you're going to get it better and do better with it if you're looking at the Bible. So if you don't have a Bible with you, if you have your phone, you can go to mygateway.life, and on the sermon card, the passage will be there for you. This is Isaiah chapter 30, verses 1 through 18. Now, I'm not going to read it all at once. We'll break it up into separate sections as we explain it and, and fill it out for us, especially filling out the context. Isaiah chapter 30 verses 1 through 18, and so let me give the setting for this, and then we'll take the first part of it. Uh, this is the 8th century B.C., so this is, the, the time of this writing, you know, is going to be around 700, 10, 15 years before the birth of Jesus, 8th century B.C. This is 100 years after the 9th century of B.C., when the kingdom of Israel, under the, under the reign of King David and King Solomon, was expanding and growing in its influence, becoming a world player. And then after the reign of King Solomon, there was a civil war, and the kingdom divided in half. And the, what resulted was the northern kingdom called Israel, and the southern kingdom called Judah. And Judah housed Jerusalem itself. And over the next 150, 200 years, each of those, both of those, grew increasingly smaller and increasingly weak. As they kind of spat with one another and with, with the, the minor powers that were living around them, the peoples that lived around them, and especially with the world powers that were dominant in the age. Um, Assyria was the preeminent superpower at the time. Egypt was a, to the south, Egypt was a, a much much weakened, much diminished rival. They still like to rattle their sword and pretend like they were a world power, but they weren't any longer. There were emerging powers on the world stage, people like Babylon, who sometimes were known as the Chaldeans, or the kingdom of Erutu, which in the Bible is known as Ararat. But these were, during the 8th century, they were no real threat to Assyria, which was the lone standing superpower. I want you to check out this map. Bring up the first one, Pete. Yeah, the first one. So you can't see the details of this, but the, the uh, I don't know what you call that, the, the, dark, the green, the non-army green, let's call it that. The kind, what is that? I'm not good with colors. Bluish green? Chartreuse. There you go. I have no idea what that means. Uh, the chartreuse-ish green, uh, that represents the kingdom of Assyria, you know, in the, in the early 8th century, 75 to 100 years before the period that we're talking about here, uh, the, the army green, that represents uh, Assyrian reign about 50 or 60 years after the, the section that we're talking about here in Isaiah 30. So you can see the march, the inevitable march of the Assyrian Empire. You'll notice that little, can you see the little orangish, yellowish, one dot there, kind of in the lower middle, that's Judah, the lone holdout, whom Isaiah is addressing. But this map, that map represents, the army green represents after the period that we're talking about. Go to the next slide, if you would, Pete. The next map will represent something a little closer to the period that Isaiah is writing into. The dark bluish purple, that's, that's Assyria. That's their influence. You can see that it was going to expand dramatically. You see Urutu above it, Chaldeans below it. And if you can see it, you'll see the little regional powers that are around Judah, Israel to the north, the Palestinians, I'm sorry, the, uh, the Philistines, the Edomites to their south, the Phoenicians up north. Uh, and then 
To the far south, it's not listed, but that 21st dynasty, et cetera, that's, that's Egypt. Um, this, this, this represents the tension of the world in which the uh, is, uh, Judahites found themselves and to which Isaiah was writing in Isaiah chapter 30. So within the court of Judah, sorry for all that boring detail, but all of that's to tell you this. Within the court of Judah, there were competing opinions about what to do about this expanding Syrian influence, this expanding Syrian army. Some believed that they should align themselves and form a pact with their other Syro-Palestinian neighbors. Uh, more believed that they should submit themselves to Assyria and just make a pact with Assyria so that they don't get devastated. This is, in fact, what King Ahaz did. And King Ahaz was King Hezekiah's father, and King Hezekiah was the king of Judah to which Isaiah was writing. King Ahaz had made an agreement with Assyria, and it didn't work out well. Assyria came in, even though they had a pact with them, they came in and ransacked various cities in Judah and taxed them out the wazoo. So this was, this was not a happy compromise. The, the prevailing opinion was, instead of either of those things, the powers around us are too weak, the pact with Assyria had not worked, let's go to Egypt. Let's build an alliance with Egypt, and that will act as a buffer against Assyrian power. Isaiah had warned against this. Egypt was a false hope. There were legitimate on-the-ground reasons for dismissing this as a, as a good plan. Other Syro-Palestinian peoples had turned to Egypt for help and received no help against the Assyrians. They had already come in to the northern part of that, that area and begun to ransack people, peoples who had pacts with Egypt, and Egypt did not come to help them. In fact, Egypt had herself recently suffered a defeat at the hands of the Assyrians. Plus, God had told them, he had told the Jews, never go back to Egypt for help. So why? Why would Judah pursue this plan of attack? Why would Judah pursue this policy of going to Egypt? Against the strong advice of Isaiah, against the advice of God's spokesperson, against the evidence on the ground, why would Judah go make an alliance with Egypt? In this passage, Isaiah lays out what I believe are four spiritual viruses that weakened them and ultimately infected their decision-making. And this should be a warning to us. These viruses are still active and very contagious today. So spiritual virus number one, if you're taking notes at home, I think spiritual virus number one is spiritual impatience. Let's look at Isaiah 30, verses 1 through 5. Isaiah chapter 30, verses 1 through 5. Woe to the obstinate children, declares the Lord, to those who carry out plans that are not mine, forming an alliance but not by my spirit, heaping sin upon sin. You're taking one thing and adding it to another, and it's all bad. Who go down to Egypt without consulting me. Who look for help to Pharaoh's protection, to Egypt's shade for refuge. Isn't that a rich image? This is the image, the, the exact image that the psalmist would use regularly, that we live under the shadow, under the protection, under the refuge of God's wing. But Pharaoh's protection will be to your shame. Egypt's shade will bring you disgrace. Though they have officials in Zon and their envoys have arrived in Haines, everyone will view it to shame. Zon and Haines were fairly large outposts, fairly large Egyptian cities that were at the, at the edge of Egypt. And evidently, there are already Judahite 
emissaries that have gone to Haines and, and Zone to work out this deal. Everyone will be put to shame because of a people useless to them who bring them neither help nor advantage, but only shame and disgrace. What are we going to do about Assyria? We've got to do something. Spiritual impatience. That's the thing with this virus. It compels us to make a decision, to build a plan, to do something without consulting God. Without waiting on a sense of peace from him, a sense of direction from him. This week I did a, a, a word study of wait. You know, I looked up phrases like wait on him or wait for him or wait for the Lord or wait on God. And in all, that set of phrases, that's used 13 times in the Psalms alone. Eight times in Isaiah alone. Just in those two Old Testament books, we're told 21 times to wait patiently on God, to allow for his solutions. That's because people who walk faithfully with God have, have always known that spiritual impatience is a deadly virus. Virus number two, self-reliance. We're going to read verse one again to set us up, and then we'll read verses six and seven. Woe to the obstinate children, declares the Lord, to those who carry out plans that are not mine, forming an alliance, but not by my spirit, heaping sin upon sin, verses 6 and 7, an oracle concerning the animals of the Negev. And let me explain this a little bit, because this is one of those confusing prophetic passage things. The Negev was an a awful, fierce desert that was way south in Judah. It was actually between Judah and Egypt. So the the prophet now is imagining this diplomatic train that's taking the trip from Judah down to Egypt through the Negev, carrying with it bribery for Egypt. So he says this, an oracle concerning the animals in the Negev. Through, through a land of hardship and distress of lions and lionesses, of adders and darting snakes, the envoy carry their riches on donkeys' backs, their treasures on the humps of camels to that unprofitable nation, to Egypt, whose help is utterly useless. Therefore, I call her Rahab the do-nothing. I read this, was talking about this last night with Diane, and Diane said, what, what, what is Rahab the do-nothing? Rahab was actually the name of a, a mythical ancient sea monster. So uh, this is kind of Isaiah being a little bit sarcastic here. It's almost like he's saying, uh, think of, think of uh, 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 a lazy Bigfoot. This is, this, you're not, you're not going to get any help when you go to Egypt. Uh, here's the thing, plans that are not mine. By the time of this writing, the plan was already being put into effect. I wonder how much difference it would make if, in our lives, if we spent more time praying than we did planning. And I want you to notice that he says this plan is going to be dangerous, it's going to be very costly, and there's very little chance of success. This is not a good plan, but at least it's a plan, and it's ours. We're going to do it. A couple of years ago, one of our elders here at Gateway told me that he thought self-reliance was the primary religion of Northern Virginia. I haven't forgotten that observation because I think he's right. This is what we do. We do it ourselves. Spiritual virus number three, let's call it willful ignorance. We might even say willful rebellious ignorance, and we're going to look at verses 10 and 11. They say to seers, see no more visions. 
and to the prophets, give us no more visions of what is right. Tell us pleasant things. Prophesy illusions. Leave this way. Don't, don't talk like you're currently talking. Get off this path and stop confronting us with the Holy, the Holy One of Israel. It's not simply that they didn't know. The fact is they didn't want to know. And is that ever true of us? Do we ever suffer from this spiritual virus? I suspect that we know that buying that new, deep down inside, we know that buying that new car will not make us happier. But still we buy. We know that electing the right slate of candidates won't solve our problems, but still we, we cling and we stress and we invest. Jim Collins, many years ago, wrote a, a great best-selling business book <clears throat> called Good to Great. Did tons of analysis of what makes great companies. And out of that analysis, he identified eight principles that all great companies have in common. One of those eight principles was this. Great companies confront the brutal facts. Great companies want to know who they really are, how others really see them, how others experience them. They want to know the real implications of their current direction. They want to know what's not working. These Judahites were saying, tell us pleasant things. By the way, we still read Isaiah today because he was right. The other court advisors were wrong. If you remember the map from earlier, not only was Egypt unable to aid Judah, it was unable to aid itself. Egypt was eventually completely overrun, and Assyria ruled her for half a century. Spiritual impatience, self-reliance, willful ignorance. That's how these people ended up with this plan. Spiritual impatience, self-reliance, willful ignorance. This is how Judah ends up going to Egypt to find aid against Assyria. And if we allow ourselves to be infected by these viruses right now, or as we think about this past year, or as we plan for the year to come, if we allow ourselves to be infected by these viruses, we will make similarly foolish decisions. And there's one more. Let's read the verse first, and then I'll give you the virus. We're going to look at verses 15 and 16 of this passage. This is what the Sovereign Lord, the Holy One of Israel, says. And here's God's solution. Put a pen here. We'll get back to this. And repentance and rest is your salvation, and quietness and trust is your strength. But you would have none of it. You said, no, we will flee on horses. Oh, you'll flee, all right. You said, we'll ride off on swift horses, therefore your pursuers will be swift. What do you think the verse is here? I would suggest fear. They wanted to flee. They wanted to run as far and as fast as they could, and who could blame them? If you take God out of the calculus, they were in a frightful situation. They were staring at the pointy end of an Assyrian sword, and everyone in the ancient Near East knew what that meant, and it wasn't good. If you take God out of the calculation, running would be the right choice ultimately. If, if all of our other plans have failed, better run. And by the way, if you take God out of the calculus, you better run faster than your neighbor. Reminds me of the old story of two guys are being chased by a bear, and one bends down to put running shoes on, and the other one says, what are you doing? You can't outrun a bear with that. And he says, I don't need to. I just need to outrun you. If you take God out of the calculation, you better run, and you better run faster than your neighbor. 
And for many of us, this has been the primary driver in our responses to this past year. If we're honest, we've been afraid of getting sick. We've been afraid for our children. We've been afraid for our parents. We've been afraid about our work situation. We've grown afraid of the other side politically. We've listened to news which has constantly stoked our fears. We have chosen news because it stoked our fears. We've made decisions based on fear, and that leads to ineffective and diminishing decisions. In fact, every time we make a decision based on fear, we make our lives smaller. And ultimately, decisions based on fear don't work. Oh, you'll ride off on horses, all right, Isaiah says. Therefore, your pursuers will be swifter. He follows that. A thousand will flee at the threat of one. At the threat of five, you will all flee away. In other words, fear-based decisions aren't even rational. Till, he says in verse 17, you are left like a flagstaff on a mountaintop, like a banner on a hill, flapping in the wind, all by yourself, hopeless. This is the direction. Now, there's an important discussion to be had about the difference between legitimate caution and fear. We're not going to have that discussion right now, but I suspect that you and I know most of the time when our legitimate caution has leaked into fear. Only in those moments, we tend to forget that fear is a, is a virus far more deadly than the one that produces COVID-19. In fact, when we get caught up in fear, it speaks so loudly that it can seem perfectly rational. But every time we make a decision based on fear, we make our lives smaller. Spiritual impatience, self-reliance, willful ignorance, and fear. Deadly viruses that lead to deadly consequences. And what is God's answer? So let's wrap up with this. Fortunately, in this case, God offers us a very direct alternative in verse 15. So let me read the end of the passage to set us up. I'm going to read 15 through 18, and then we're going to settle down on verse 15. Isaiah 30, 15 through 18, and let's, let's, uh, let's wake ourselves up because we need to hear God's alternative, and let's go old school, stand out of reverence for God's word. Isaiah 30, 15 through 18. This is what the sovereign Lord, the Holy One of Israel, says. Isaiah wants them to take out a highlighter and underline this. Remember this, people. In repentance and rest is your salvation. And quietness and trust is your strength. But you would have none of it. You said, no, we will flee on horses. Therefore, you will flee. You said, we will ride up on swift horses. Therefore, your pursuers will be swift. A thousand will flee at the threat of one. At the threat of five, you will all flee away till you're left like a flagstaff on a mountaintop, like a banner on a hill. But that's not God's, that's not God's desire. Yet the Lord longs to be gracious to you. Therefore, he, ultimately, he will rise up to show you compassion, for the Lord is a God of justice. Look at this. Blessed are all who wait for him. You can be seated. All right, did you hear God's alternative? In repentance and rest is your salvation, in quietness and trust is your strength. Now, uh, this is a devotional outpouring from God's heart. I, I doubt 
that Isaiah meant for this to be anything like a formula for us, but we're going to use it like that this morning because it's a good way to, to reflect and to get at some of the questions that should be driving us. These questions should guide our thoughts and prayers, both as we evaluate this past year and as we look forward to this next year. If you want some genuine insight into what our lives will look like over the next year, let's start where God suggests that we start. And by the way, if you want to refer back to this, I'm going to toss these up on uh, these thoughts up on mygateway.life this week. So you can go there for further reflection. I encourage you to do so. So alternative number one, God's alternative number one, repentance. In other words, turn from anything that isn't dependence on God. That's what repentance means. Don't pursue plans that are not mine, says the Lord. Don't act without consulting me, says the Lord. Turn away from anything that isn't built on dependence. And I believe that throws up for us a couple of obvious starter questions. Throughout this past year, what has caused you to be afraid? What has caused you to move beyond the region of appropriate caution into the area of diminishing, even paralyzing fear? Has it been the virus? Your children? Your health? Has it been the race conversation? Has it been politics in general? Your finances? Your job? Your career? Same set of thoughts for worry. What has driven you to worry? to paralyzing worry. By the way, for me, there has been worry about the church. Are we ever going to make it back again? What does this mean for the church? What has caused you to fear? What has caused you to worry this past year? And then the deeper drill is, what would it look like for you and me to repent from that? To turn away from fear or worry and to turn toward actively depending on God. It's more than feeling sorry. It's more than wanting not to worry or not to be afraid. What would it take for us to turn away? I'm going to offer some practical suggestions. They may not be for you, but this is a serious question that you and I must answer. How about fasting from Facebook so that you aren't you aren't constantly comparing yourself with your college roommate or with your next-door neighbor, or you're not reading all those articles that just make you angry and afraid. How about a time of fasting from the news for the same reasons? How about make this a topic of conversation in your small group or with a friend or with your spouse if you're married? Repentance. Alternative number two, rest. Doesn't that sound good? This, by the way, this is not good sleep, although that may be part of it. This is an end of striving and clinging and clutching. This is, this is a sustained peace. This is a better rhythm. This is a time to reflect and, and look to God and, and what he's done. You know, when I was talking about this with Diane, Diane made the observation that early in this pandemic, she kind of felt from a number of people that she talked to because God had forced it, we were kind of finding this. You know, there, were, there, were, there were young dads who were out riding bikes with their kids, and they'd never done that before. Moms were telling her, you know, we, we've, we've stopped all sports, and we've, it, I kind of like it. And then over the months, didn't it just ramp up? Part of the ramp up was just the angst of what's going to happen and when are we going to end this. In fact, for some of us, we started feeling angst because we weren't angsty. What happened to the pace of our lives? Why aren't we running like we used to? And this inspires starter questions for us, doesn't it? 
throughout this past year, what has turned up the motor on your heart and mind? What things caused a lack of peace in you? Think about the rhythm of your life. What are the things that have caused you to run at an unnecessarily high RPM? <clears throat> and when did you feel that way? That, that may help you answer the what. When did you feel that? And as you think about the upcoming year, what, what is it about the upcoming year that, that causes you to start striving and clutching and holding on too tightly? Obviously, once we've identified those things, we need to choose to give those things to God every day if you have to. And repentance and rest is your salvation. That's where it starts for us. God's third alternative, quietness. This is virtually a synonym of rest. In fact, sometimes the word used in Hebrew here is translated rest in English, but it adds the idea of being undisturbed. You and I just don't need to be disturbed by what's going on around us. We don't, we don't know, but God does. We don't need to be ill at ease. Specifically, it seems like Isaiah was suggesting, listen to this, it seems like Isaiah was suggesting that the Judahites didn't need to join any side. They didn't need to seek out Egypt. They didn't need to find an alliance with local powers. They didn't need to petition Assyria. They just needed to trust the Lord and wait on him, and he would bring the right solution at the right time. And this inspires some starter questions, doesn't it? What has disturbed you this year? Have there been events that have taken over your internal dialogue? I can't believe they're doing that. I can't believe that's how. I can't believe. Taken over. And if so, how do you step back from that? How do you get to quiet? What do you need to do? This is where we start. Alternative solution number four and last. Trust. Think about the situation that confronted Judah. Now, remember, literally, Syria is not at their doorstep at the time of this writing. The, the, the Syrians are not marching to Jerusalem at this point. That would eventually happen. Don't miss this. That would happen. Uh, King Sennacherib would lead the Assyrian army to the gates of Jerusalem in 701 B.C. at the very end of the 8th century. And when that happened, God miraculously delivered them. That's another story for another day, but just know it had nothing to do with Egypt or this plan. This plan produced nothing. So think about the situation that confronted them. What if the point wasn't even to build a plan? Their starter question was, how do we protect ourselves? With whom should we align? What kind of alliance should it be? How much will it cost us? What if, what if all of those were the wrong questions? What if the point of the exercise for them was to ask, what does it look like for us to trust in God right now? What does it look like for us to wait on him right now? What if the specifics of their circumstances were not even the real challenge? What if, should we do hybrid or should we do stay at home? What if that was never the real question? What if that wasn't the starting point? There we have our starter questions, don't we? What does it look like for us to trust in God this next year? What does it look like for us to wait on him for this next year? There will be decisions to make about our children, about our finances, about our vacations, about our health. What if those are not the starting places for us? 
What if we started by asking, what does it look like for us to trust in God this next year? When we're running at our best, we wake up every morning and we take a running leap into the mystery of God's will. When we're at our best, we don't know what's coming. We don't have all the information that we need. But we know that God does. We place ourselves in his care, under the shadow of his wing. We embrace the mystery before us, knowing that we are leaning into a good God who loves us and has wonderful plans for us. He's more concerned about all of our problems than we are. This is the only way to live if we want to live virus-free. The alternative is to run too fast, with too much striving, to live with a constant undertone of disquiet, to plan and to worry and to try to anticipate everything, to live in the shadow of fear and to watch our lives get smaller and smaller and tighter and tighter. Let's repent. Let's rest. Let's settle into quiet. Let's trust. Let's embrace the mystery of knowing God has us. And by the way, for all of us who need to, let's do some work this week with these starter questions. Let's pray. I don't know, Lord, I'm imagining myself this morning at a starting line of a race, and I, I just think there are constantly uh, in the culture going on around me, in my own thoughts, and in our family, and the news I watch, there are starter pistols firing off constantly. Uh, misinforming me that I gotta, I gotta start running fast as I can. I, you know, and when I get quiet before you, I can recognize it's, it's an illusion. I just, I, I get caught up in it. And this morning, Lord, I want to repent. I want to turn away from that. I want to take a moment, and I want to still myself. And then I want to, uh, with all that I know of myself, give myself to all that I know of you, and and set myself up by asking the right questions. We want to start, Lord, where uh, you want us to start and not where fear or willful ignorance or spiritual impatience, not where these deadly viruses would lead us to start, Lord. We, this morning, we, we want to be at the end of self-reliance, but it's kind, we kind of have to put it to death every day, and so today we choose to do so. We choose to depend on you. Lord, hear us. We pray over this next year only for a deeper level of leaning into you. And today, we're not going to worry about tomorrow or yesterday. Today, we take a running leap into the mystery of your will. 
we embrace it. We welcome it because we know that your sovereign love has got us. We have sensed that this morning. And we're so thankful. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.